So, Mark. Yes? This week's film features the screen debut of just one of the best guys out there. He's just such a good guy. And cinema really was never the same once we met Shrike. I wish he had more of a name. Well, he is Shrike, the resurrected man. The resurrected man. Member of the Lazarus Brigade, survivor of the Nomad Wars. This movie has such an interesting background. Like, the backstory sounds so fascinating, because what on earth could lead you to put a city on wheels? We're going to talk a lot about the movie and, like, the nonsense in it, and more than anything this week, I was struck by how YA the movie is in a way that I didn't really realize watching it the first time. Well, when you watch it in, like, (laughs) Dolby... You're just overwhelmed by the traction cities. Yeah. Whereas watching it on my TV, I was like, this is extremely YA in a way that almost recalls, like, the... Taron Edgerton Robin Hood, but much better. Wasn't that the same year, too? It's like a month earlier. Yeah. And, like, there is there is something to that. If you think about, like, the giant behemoth that is the mine in Nottingham kind of has a Traction City vibe and, like, the vague but nonspecific, like, political rebellion going on. I just love the politics of this movie because no one's really sure what they're saying. <laughs> right, and it doesn't really make a ton of sense because it's also not clear how much power any one person has. They detach themselves so much from reality by putting these cities on wheels that they can't ground it in a way. My thing is, I know these movies are based on books. And, like, those books have their fans and stuff like that. But circling back to Shrike the Resurrected Man, member of the Lazarus Brigade, survivor of the Nomad Wars, the movie is just relentless with referencing historical nonsense or contemporary nonsense on other parts of the map. And it's just kind of exciting how constantly it is throwing out these absurd references that nobody is expected to get. It's just like, this is all just color. It's all just spice in the sauce. I love it, personally, because the movie just also knows what it's doing is ridiculous. And the background is so hit or miss, because some of the names and ideas are really cool sounding. 60 Minute War, pretty great. Lazarus Brigade, also great. Medusa, the giant machine, meh. Take it or leave it. I wish that we had gotten to know what Medusa stands for, because it's clearly an acronym, but they never go through the, like, sweaty USA Patriot Act explanation of what it means. Let me look, because I think it's on the book's Wikipedia page. Because in the other books, the, like, new threat is called Odin, which is, like, orbital defense in space or something. What was it? What was the thing in the core, the ridiculous acronym for the drilling project? Oh, I don't remember. Nah, it's not on oh, here. Destiny with an I. Deep Earth Seismic Trigger Initiative. Ah, uh, yes, that was it. My god. I also do like this movie's decision to kind of get rid of the weird, like, Victorian trappings of the books and just do every fashion at once. I almost felt like it needed to go harder into, like, weird fashion. Like, my my biggest issue is with Kate, who is just, like, a pretty blonde who looks like a pretty blonde from 2018. Yeah, she's definitely the, the weakest link. Especially in terms of, like, design. Like, she needs, like, a gun for an arm. She needs something. She needs something. That is just, like, weird. Because everyone should be kind of weird. And she's too vaguely pretty 
without having, like, an interesting energy. Like, Hugo Weaving, just a good-looking guy, but he's got Hugo Weaving energy. There's just something there with that man. Yeah. Those eyebrows. Anyway, we were talking about Shrike, the resurrected man, member of the Lazarus Brigade, survivor of the Nomad Wars. And in the spirit of Shrike, my guy, my main man, what's your favorite cyborg in a movie? So, obviously, the prime cyborg is RoboCop. I mean, for sure. But I do, I will always have a soft spot. It's a TV show, but the Avas in Neon Genesis Evangelion, which are introduced as robots but turned out to be cyborgs because they are piloted by the souls of dead mothers who are then able to connect with their children. And that is why you have children piloting giant robots through the use of soul connection. The creator might have had some mommy issues, <laughs> but it is great, and they are very cool. Yeah, I also obviously thought of RoboCop at first. He is clearly the correct answer for best cyborg I mean, in a yeah. movie. He is the mold from which Shrike is built. Oh, absolutely. Even with like the emotional quality of it, too, mm-hmm. where Shrike is this robot who has lost his emotions. And is seems to have started to gain them back, too. Yeah. Of course, when I was in middle school, my favorite cyborg would have been General Grievous. He's a good cyborg. He's a fun cyborg because... He is not a cyborg in the sense of, like, Darth Vader, where he's, like, part machine and part person. General Grievous is just, like, a couple of organs suspended in a hollow chest cavity. He's the Theseus' ship of humans. Right. Sticking with Star Wars, I also thought of Lobot. Who is Lobot? Lobot's everyone's favorite cyborg with no lines. Uh, In episode 5 in Cloud City, he is the administrator of the city, working for Lando Calrissian. And he is a person who just has, like, a computer, like, band around his head. Oh, yes. His name's Lobot, like, Robot with an L. Oh, my God. Oh, boy. (laughs) I also do like, what's his name? Gordy? Because he... um, Gordy the monkey from Nope? No. um, Jordy? Something. From Star Trek. Jordy LaForge. Jordy LaForge. Because he raises the question of, at what point does it become a cyborg? Yeah, absolutely. Jordy LaForge. I was close with Gordy. Yeah, you were all right. There's one other cyborg that I think is important to our relationship. Which one and is that? And that's Detective Katie Coltrane. Oh my god, my brain is fried. What? Who is that? That sounds so uh, familiar. Detective Katie oh Coltrane. Oh my god, she's a cyborg in that movie. <laughs> she's a cyborg, and she has the first ever dinosaur detective as her partner. Oh my god, I forgot she was a cyborg. You forgot that in the... 1996 direct-to-video film Theodore Rex. Whoopi Goldberg plays a cyborg because the movie does not give you that information for two-thirds of its runtime. Yeah, and it's not even revealed like that big of a twist. It's just, oh right, I'm a cyborg. Because she has been shot and they need Whoopi Goldberg to still be in the movie. Oh my god. Did you have to look that name up or did you have that online? No, of course I had to look that name up. I don't think I knew it. I don't think I knew it when we watched <laughs> I the movie. Know, I don't think you learned it in the movie. We should watch Theodore Rex again. Uh, I think we should not, because I think, I remember the last time we did it, we were just like, I don't think we should watch it again, because it's losing some of the magic. I still have the DVD. I think I have the poster somewhere, too. If it was put in theaters, I would go. I think contractually it cannot be put in theaters. I think if we brought that DVD to a movie theater, they would do a illegal screening for us. Well, unfortunately, the landmark West End is closed, and that's the only theater I know that shows movies on DVD. (laughs) 
what a weird day that was. That was a weird theater. Sure was. <laughs> Nine seats and a DVD projector. And there were columns. And there were columns blocking the view of some of the seats. Look, I'm sad any time a movie theater closes, but that one maybe deserved to. No, that one should never have been opened. It was not a space for a movie theater. If you have no. columns, you can't sell partial view tickets to a movie. <laughs> well, we we started by doing it, but I suppose we should get back to talking about Mortal Engines. Yes, because so so many things happen in this movie that need to be addressed. It gets started immediately. When the Universal logo comes up on screen, you're looking at the Universal logo as purple explosions happen on the world that it's circling around. Cool. The 60-minute war plays out before our eyes. Thank God not in real time. <laughs> yeah. This movie does not need to be longer. Uh, anyway, welcome to We Love the Love, a Hollywood romance podcast. I'm Mark and I'm gay. And I'm Will and I'm a ginger. This is an investigative podcast committed to answering the least important issue facing our world. Uh, maybe more than one. Number one, why didn't people go see this movie? I think they should have, but also we can answer that question. Yes. Number two, does Hollywood romance actually make any sense? And are these people, or cyborgs, actually dateable, or even likable? It doesn't matter if the romance is a main plot, or a one-scene flirtation, or if you can't quite tell how much of it is supposed to be romantic. We will dig in and see what's there, and this week, at long last, we are talking about our beloved Mortal Engines, the 2018 adaptation of Philip Reeves' novel directed by Christian Rivers. I just have to get something off my chest at the start. I already texted you about this. In the movie, Anna Fang, played by Jihei. Cool. Great character. Rescues the lead, Hester Shaw, because she knew her mother. And I was like, there's no way. Pandora Shaw died when Hester was eight. And Jihei does not look old enough to have known her. I looked it up. The actress who plays Anna Fang is one year younger than the lead actress and is supposed to be in this motherly role, which was just a weird choice. That's hilarious. I do think an issue is like some of our main people like Tom and Hester and Kate, I think need to be actual teens. Yes. And they're all like 30. Yeah, it should have been like actual children. I feel like if this had been put out with like, I don't know who the hot teens of the moment were, but, like, Haley Steinfeld as an actual teen in the lead, it would have been very cool. I do not know how old she is. She may have no longer been a teen by that point. Well, this would have been, like, around the same time as Bumblebee. So, yeah, she's playing youngish. I'm just picturing more, like, true grit Haley Steinfeld. So that would have been eight years earlier. Yes. <laughs> I don't know time, Will. But, like... At, at minimum, and these people are also older, but, like, yeah, if you're talking about casting it to get people to see it, like, you cast it just with the cast of Riverdale. <laughs> or the cast of Euphoria. Uh, yeah, I think this is a little early for that. Oh, yeah, at that time. Yeah, put KJ Appa in it, and the teens will go see it. I don't know, they... Well, actually, no, people did go to see his Christian movie. <laughs> he had a Christian movie? He is the lead of I Still Believe, which is the Jeremy Camp biopic movie. Okay. It opened in March of 2020, and it was, like, one of the last movies still making money in theaters because of all the, like, Christians who were just like, no, we have to go to the movies and, like, not worry about this. My god, of course. I did watch that movie on Hulu. It is reprehensible. <laughs> I saw a trailer for the new Kelsey Grammer 60s Jesus movie. You're talking about the Jesus Revolution? The Jesus Revolution, which looks odd. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it certainly does. I mean, it's no... 
by the time this comes out, it will... Oh, no. It will not have come out yet. Doesn't look like a Satan conspiracy. A movie I showed to Will, in which scientists have figured out cloning, and it's actually a plot by Satanists to use the DNA of Jesus Christ to build their own Antichrist and start the apocalypse. I mean, cool. And the Archangel Michael has to stop them. I love that idea. Very Dracula 2000. I'm into it. Yeah. So, Mortal Engines, you and I saw this together. We saw it opening night. Like, the Thursday night. The Thursday night, Dolby. We were both so on board. And there were not a lot of other people in that theater. No. It wasn't empty, though. No. It wasn't full. I don't remember. It wasn't one where I was like, it was a Thursday night still. So it wasn't as crowded. I don't remember being like, oh, this is going to be the third biggest bomb in history based off of attendance tonight. But, like, that weekend it was immediately clear because, like, the movie cost well over $100 million. In the lead-up, Deadline was reporting that it was tracking for a 10 to $13 million opener. And Deadline was saying, like, wow, it's going to be really bad for Universal when this movie opens to 10 to $13 million. And then it opened to seven and a half. I don't get it. How did people... Like, how did it bomb this hard? I honestly think most people were not aware of it. Yeah, I think it may have been a marketing issue. Which is not that they weren't marketing it, but I don't know if they marketed it terribly well. It was funny how much the trailers really sold the Peter Jackson of it. And, like, to be fair, he didn't just produce it, he also wrote it. Mm -hmm. But you would be forgiven for thinking that the movie was directed by Peter Jackson. I mean, it's the Tim Burton's Nightmare Before Christmas scenario. Yes, although I think Jackson was more involved in this than Burton was in Nightmare Before Christmas. Yes, that is true. And I guess it doesn't help that the Hobbit movies weren't exactly beloved. Yeah, it's crazy that the last Hobbit movie is the last narrative fiction film Peter Jackson directed. I mean... He's just made documentaries since then. I wonder if he'll get back into it. The Hobbit movies were not a success. Yeah, he also didn't want to make those. Like, he was pretty clear that he only did it to, like, help New Zealand's economy. Yeah. Which, I mean, those movies have done wonders for New Zealand's economy. Right. But yeah, he was desperate not to direct The Hobbit. Wasn't Guillermo del Toro going to direct it at one point? Guillermo del Toro was attached to it for a long time. See, Guillermo and, like, del Toro's one movie, Hobbit, would be good. I think it became two while he was still working on it. Okay. And it's also worth keeping in mind that they shot The Hobbit as two movies and made it three in post. Oof. Yeah, that's also bad. Can you imagine... I think Guillermo del Toro would actively show Bilbo getting knocked out, and that's why the Battle of Five Armies isn't in the book scene. And it would be amazing. It rocks. Because it is so funny that you hear about this grand battle, and then when you read the book, Bilbo's knocked on the head with a rock, and then is unconscious for the battle, and is woken up after they've won. Just... An absolute king move by Tolkien. Like, nobody wants to write about a battle. No one wants to write about a battle, and he was writing it for his children. So, Mortal Engines, as we said, you and I saw it opening night in a theater that had other occupants. I don't even remember the experience of watching it so much as I remember standing with you on the corner of M Street afterwards, as we were just thrilled by what we had seen. This isn't a movie you watch. It is a movie you experience. Especially in Dolby. Yeah, I didn't quite recapture that watching it on my TV yesterday, but it's still just like, it is a movie that is so assured of so much nonsense that you just have to appreciate it. And like, especially because like, yes, it's adapted from a book, but it's also adapted from a book from like 
before everything was just an IP farm. So it's firing out all of this stuff, but you don't feel like it's trying to like hint towards anything else or like no, it's not- serve some greater universe. It's just like, here's a bunch of stuff. And like, I hope you like it because I like it. It's the experience of reading a like high fantasy book where they're just throwing in word salad for fun and to build out the world rather than creating opportunities for further content. Yeah, and there was a hope that there would be more of this. Peter Jackson did a Polygon interview before the movie came out where he was talking about like, yeah, hopefully the movie will do well enough that we can get a sequel. If that happens, then I want to make a video game happen. So there were hopes to expand this, but even that, like, a video game... And a sequel, that's like 2002 expanding a franchise. Can you imagine Mortal Engines video game? It would rule! Uh, uh, at the very least, I think they could justify that. Because if they were like, look, you're driving a big city. It's on wheels. You eat other cities. Sign me up. So, I think it's worth saying, none of our listeners have seen Mortal Engines. I think it's pretty fair. I have convinced two people to look into watching it. But I think we should just run down the basic premise of it. Okay. Yeah, go ahead. So, let me see what I can remember. Thousands of years in the past, the old society worshipped their weird yellow gods. I think it's like 1,000 years in the past. Okay. It's a a very long time, but not like, you know, the absurdity of 10,000 years in the past of Legend of Zelda. The U.S. and, I assume, China or the Soviet Union, depending on the era in which the book was written. 2001. 2001. Okay. Oh, weird. It's not obvious at that point. Not an obvious answer, then. (laughs) So there's a massive war using quantum weapons. Which are purple. Which are purple. They love to throw the word quantum out there. Destroys the planet in 60 minutes, including breaking up continents. Okay, so I texted our geologist consultant, Naomi. Oh, good. About this. Because in the movie, we're told that all the quantum bombs from the 60-minute war caused the Earth's crust to shatter into a thousand pieces. And that's why the map of the world looks different in Mortal Engines than it does in our own time. Like, there's a scene where Tom shows Kate a map of the 21st century planet, and she's like, wow, it looks so different. So I texted Naomi, and I said, if countries set off a ton of quantum bombs, would the Earth's (laughs) crust shatter into a thousand pieces? And make the map of continents look different. And she said, I'm going to go with no, but I don't know what a quantum bomb is. <laughs> she went on, she said, like, thinking about shattering, like, even if you accepted that they could shatter the Earth's crust, for example, if an eggshell shattered, the pieces would not suddenly rearrange all over the egg. I mean, I guess the idea would be that water rushes in on a Earth's crust, which it wouldn't on the egg. Right. For example, we do see that there's a dry riverbed in continental Europe, which I don't think is a thing. Yeah. And we're told that there's a land bridge from Britain to the continent. Yeah. I don't know where all the water went, but it's not in Europe anymore. Right. That's that's the other issue. You're like, what has happened to the climate here? Yeah. And also, is it just Europe that is particularly poor off? Because shang no. seems to be doing fine. So... The 60-Minute War, and this is based a little bit on reading about the books. The 60-Minute War, like, hits North America the hardest. The Deadlands. Right, North America is referred to as the Deadlands, or the Dead Continent. Um, Traction cities 
which are where the the story is set. These enormous cities that have gone mobile. So after the 60-minute war, it caused like geologic upheaval. So there's like earthquakes happening all the time. There's volcanoes exploding. And so the reason that they create traction cities is so that they can move when there's a natural disaster. So what they did is they took their cities and they put the cities on treads. So the cities roll around as these like enormous behemoths. It's ridiculous. It's incredibly silly. And it looks so cool. So the cities just roll around on treads. We follow the city of London, which is one of the biggest ones, and has recently crossed the land bridge from Britain to continental Europe. It seems like they've ingested all of the cities in Britain already. Right. These traction cities are incredibly energy inefficient. And so to get more resources, they need to ingest. Literally, like, the city has a maw that opens wide and, like, slurps up smaller traction towns. The movie starts with them eating a Bavarian mining town. It's very Howl's Moving Castle. Yes. Uh, They call this practice municipal Darwinism. (laughs) The stronger cities devour the weaker Survival of the fittest. So the traction cities are really only in Europe, North Africa, Western Asia, and of course Antarctica. Oh yes, of course. And then most of the rest of the world is the Anti-Traction League. Oh my god, of course. Like, yeah, sure. Why not? Look, Here's the thing, Mark. Like, traction cities and static settlements, they can't live together in peace. It's, it's the, I guess it's going for, like, a nomadic tribe versus settled society vibe. It is the thing of, like, this is such an inefficient way to be a nomad. It's, there's no logic to this. Like, there's so little logic to the traction cities beyond Well, no, you, you gotta understand, cruel. like, the upper class lives up top where it's nice, the lower class lives in the bottom where it's like noisy and stinky from the machinery. It makes a ton of sense. The different guilds control society. Yeah, this they don't get into in the movie, but in the books there's a lot of business which feels extremely YA like with its lineage down to like divergent of the city being dominated by different guilds, the navigators, the historians, the merchants, the engineers. 2001 was early for this kind of thing though. Yeah. So it's a forerunner of the genre rather than a copycat in a way. Yes. It was striking watching this, how just extremely YA it is in terms of all of that. Like the fairly basic narrative of like girl with a secret history wants revenge on the mean government guy. You know, there's some Hunger Games in that. The different guilds, like kind of very divergent, the like vague gesturing towards a love triangle. Like there is a lot of YA baked into it, but... The world is so excitingly realized that I, like, I just roll with it. I roll with it like a traction city across the continent. I really just follow this movie where it takes me. When Anna Fang just shows up at that slave market and starts shooting everyone in sight, it's like, because the movie kind of will dip at certain points, and then a new ridiculous character will show up and shake it up. Which is a great strategy. Yeah, because, oh my god. The sunglasses, the hair, the red leather jacket. We're introduced to the concept of this character early in the movie as just like the most wanted enemy of the city. Yeah. 50,000 quirks for her, her bounty. The quirks are named for the guy who invented Traction Cities. Of course they are. Sure. Why not? Traction Cities got their start 600 years earlier. The story of that is told in the prequel trilogy Fever Crumb. Okay. <laughs> sure. <laughs> like, go for it. 
I also love the idea that the traction cities all have a unified currency, despite being in a perpetual state of war. Yeah, it's great. And clearly, like, this world has reached some sort of equilibrium where the traction cities aren't necessarily literally hunting down everyone because, like, the, like, slave market is able to exist. You have um, Scuttlebutt, the cool, like, centipede city. Yes, that is pretty cool to watch crawl around. I would kind of like to see a second major city. Like, where is Berlin in all of this? Yeah, apparently Anchorage is a big traction city. In the books. Yeah, there's a lot of Arctic and Antarctic activity. Yeah. I would love to see a battle between more equally sized cities, because the only real hunt you see are of tidy towns by London. Yeah. And I think that's what Thaddeus Valentine, Hugo Weaving, is getting at when he's saying that municipal Darwinism is a like dying philosophy. Mm-hmm. Where in the book he is the head of the historian's guild. Which is why he like knows about old technology to try to to try something different. Mm-hmm. But Hugo Weaving is kind of the main antagonist of the movie, and he talks a lot about how like municipal Darwinism, the strong cities devouring the weak cities, is an unsustainable lifestyle, and they have to try something new. My quibble is that like it's not clear what new he wants to try. He wants to break through the shield wall and attack the static cities. So it's not like he's like we need to stop being a place that just rolls around attacking people. It seems like he's more like, we should attack people that can't run away from us. Yeah, I mean, I guess the idea is it's not municipal Darwinism in so much as he just plans to massacre the world. So that's where I'm like, could you use a little a little more detail here, Thad? I don't, I, I get it. I don't think he needs to be framing it as like a dramatic change to the system. He's just opening, it should be just he's opening new hunting grounds. Right, that's what it should be about. I will say the other thing that I really wish is that I wish we had a stronger sense of, like, the people of London. Like, I don't really feel like I know who they are, how they feel about any of this. Like, we see some of the upper class people who like to watch London hunt other cities. But, for example, at the end of the movie, where London is in the middle of a giant battle, like, how is that affecting people? How do they feel about all this? Are they manning the defenses of the city? Are they hunkered down somewhere? Are they annoyed about this when it happens? I almost like, watching this movie, I felt like James Cameron when he talks about Avatar, where I'm like, every story that I need to be told, I can I can experience in the world of Mortal Engines. <laughs> I really do think a small family drama set on Attraction City would be amazing. Yeah. Here's my other big question about life on Attraction City. Our male lead is Tom Knotsworthy, and we're told that his parents died, quote, when Tier 4 collapsed in the big tilt. Does that mean London tipped over? I think it means it capsized slightly. <laughs> right, it sounds like, the big tilt, it sounds like we're on wheels and we tipped over. They ran over a mountain, and it knocked them to the side. Yeah. So, I guess, yeah, like, how dangerous is life in the Traction City, then? These are the kinds of things that I I wish I could know, and that's where that final battle, I feel like we've kind of lost the sense of the fact that, like, this is a city. It's just turned into, like, a warship. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but it's cool. (laughs) Yeah, it is. It's pretty darn cool. Yeah, they talk vaguely about, you know, like, oh, there's innocent people on board that ship, like, on board that city. I mean, really what we need is, like, we need a character in London that we are invested in, who we can see it through their eyes. You know, if you think about the James Cameron version of this, in, like, Titanic, 
we've built even just passing relationships with enough passengers that the movie can check in on them as the ship is going down. Yeah. And we don't need a lot of time to get how they are all experiencing it. And here, the only people on London that we know are Hugo Weaving, who is the bad guy and is totally focused on the battle. Tom's friend, whose name I don't even remember. And Kate, who is Hugo Weaving's daughter. So she is not representative of the city at all. And also the movie ignores her for long stretches of time, so you don't have a strong relationship with her. Yeah, I don't care about her at all. Yeah, she's a bad character, and she should have a gun for an arm. And Even just an eye patch. Yeah, something. In the book, her main thing is getting shot by her own father. Cool. And she dies. Oh, well, I was hoping she could get shot and then have a gun for an arm. No, it does not blow the arm off her shoulder. I, okay, I know we're talking about the books, but reading the summaries, they are wild because Anna Fang gets brought back as a Lazarus Brigade style stalker. Cool. And becomes a military dictator. I love this. (laughs) So uh, the Lazarus Brigade, like my man Shrike, these are people who cheat death by transferring their consciousness to a cyborg, but because cyborgs can't feel emotion, they eventually just like lose all of their emotional connection and memories and just become like terminators, just unstoppable murderous machines. And they were created for a war. Yes. Like they were created to be unstoppable machines rather than like people. And they were supposed to be destroyed at the end of the war, but my guy Shrike He survived. He survived, and he rescues a little orphaned eight-year-old Hester Shaw. Yeah. God, Shrike, what a good dude. And he's got glowing green eyes. He's played by Stephen Lang. It's another James Cameron connection. Hester Shaw. You know, it is funny that this movie comes out, like, two months before Alita Battle Angel, which similarly is, like, clearly a movie that's trying to launch a franchise. But as much as I like Alita, that's a movie that's doing it a little more clumsily, especially in its ending. It is so clearly teasing a sequel with like a new villain introduction and stuff like that that was never going to happen because the movie was a huge flop even if it was fun in theaters like i think part of what's satisfying about mortal engines is that it is contained while also making you want more of it yeah it's the pirates of the caribbean thing right you're like clearly there's a world beyond this but it really doesn't need a sequel yeah um it was directed by christian rivers who's a peter jackson guy he'd been a storyboarder on all of jackson's movies since 1992 oh wow Yeah, so he's like a close collaborator of Peter Jackson's. He won a visual effects Oscar for designing the dinosaur fight in King Kong. He directed a splinter unit for the Hobbit movies. He was the second unit director for the David Lowry Pete's Dragon remake in 2016. And Mortal Engines is his feature directorial debut, and so far, his only feature directing job. I'm not anticipating more. He is currently attached to direct a remake of The Dam Busters, a World War II movie from the 50s, which is also a Peter Jackson project. Yeah, I guess Peter Jackson still has enough currency to get him more work. Yeah, and like this is very much a Jackson project. Like Jackson bought the rights in 2009, so post-King Kong, same year that The Lovely Bones comes out. He co-wrote the script with Fran Walsh and Philip Boyens. So this is like very fully a Peter Jackson project. Like a lot of his collaborators are on mm-hmm. board. It's just not directed by him. Do you know why he didn't direct it? Um, I don't. I think that he just wanted to focus on other things. This is the period where he's getting that World War I museum set up in New Zealand. Mm. He like put a lot of resources into that, and then eventually he makes They Shall Not Grow Old, his World War I documentary. Mm-hmm. So I'm assuming he was just doing that. More dedicated to that. Yeah. But he was like, this is a cool story. Christian, Here you, you make this. Yeah. Ugh, mortal so they shot it in the spring of 2017 in New Zealand, visual effects by Weta Digital. 
And like we said, it's it's a gigantic flop. It lost well over $100 million. Currently number three, according to Wikipedia's ranking. Unadjusted. Oh, box office bombs. Nominal. Okay. Yeah. It also doesn't help that this movie opened the same weekend as Into the Spider-Verse and The Mule. And, like, The Mule was subject of a lot of jokes, but that movie made money. That's so weird that that movie made money. I'm going to confirm this. I'm fairly certain The Mule made over $100 million. No. So, worldwide, The Mule made $174 million. Jesus Christ. Yeah. The Mule made $103 million in North America alone. Like, that movie was a hit. That's wild. I don't... Yeah. Did you watch it? No. I know that Clint Eastwood has multiple threesomes in it. Multiple? Yeah. Oh, God. But, like, that's where... I don't know if you were aware of this. I can't remember if it's the current Warner Brothers executives or the, I think it's the last round of Warner Brothers executives who were going in and trying to, like, slash everything. And they were complaining about Cry Macho. And they're like, why did we spend all this money on Cry Macho? This was stupid. And... The answer they gave is like, well, we're trying to keep a relationship with Clint Eastwood. And he was like, no, this is a business. We need relationships that do business. And it's like, that's dumb because you can never tell when a Clint movie is going to hit. Because, sure, Cry Macho didn't make money in the pandemic, but his previous movie was The Mule and it crossed 100 domestic. (sighs) Bonkers. Yeah. And then next to it, you've got Into the Spider-Verse, which opened with like five times when this movie opened. Yeah, that was quite a significant film. Yeah, great movie. Looking forward to the new one. So, nominal total loss. Mortal Engines, number three. Adjusted for inflation, it drops to number four. Who's above it? Uh, the 13th Warrior, right above it. Number two is The Lone Ranger. Hello. And number one, subject of an upcoming episode, John Carter. John Carter! I'm looking forward to talking about that. John Carter and The Lone Ranger are the top two nominal and adjusted for inflation still. And this is why Disney committed so fully to IP. Yeah. And then Turning Red is number four, but they also do designate movies that were released concurrently on streaming. Yeah, that's like a different story. Yeah. So it is just an interesting, the list is kind of interesting now. Yeah. Huh. Uh, Black Adam's on it. No, I, The Rock told me that Black Adam was a huge success and they're going to be greenlighting a sequel soon. Yeah. Black Adam and Amsterdam are both still on the top, like, 50. It was very funny when I loaded that page yesterday and saw Amsterdam on there. I was like, oh, Amsterdam. Oh, Amsterdam. <gasps> Krull. <laughs> I didn't know Krull was on it. Uh, we should do Krull, too. I've never seen Krull. We should do Krull. So, we should probably talk about the romance of Mortal Engines, such as it is. I think we should. Is it there? Number, number one question. And I'm going to be looking at multiple relationships, all of which will have the question, is this a romance? <laughs> it's hard to know. Yeah, I mean, part of the issue is, like, again, like... These people should be actual teens so they can feel a little hornier. Because I think this is a story that wants to be incredibly horny, and that would partially explain some of what goes on. But also, this movie needs some kissing. And it has no kissing. Its romantic climax is a hug? It's just so unhorny. But it's not like it's not like a movie that feels unhorny. It's a movie that feels like it should be horny, but isn't. Isn't, yeah. It doesn't even feel repressed. It just feels like it's missing. Right. It's weird. This movie could stand to be more horny. Like, if they're gonna do a love triangle, lean into it. This thing should be like a Matrix sequel. I don't know about that far. (laughs) (laughs) Especially if we're aging them down. Well, sure. One or the other. Yeah, I think that Tom and Catherine should have had more of a thing going on. Well, that's gonna be our first point. (laughs) Okay. 
So every week we break down the romance into five points to guide conversation. Will, I already guessed it, point one, Tom and Catherine. Yeah, so our male lead in this movie is Tom, who's played by Robert Sheehan. We've seen him before because he is a crew member aboard the Dutch Boy in Geostorm. Ugh, what a weird career he has had. (laughs) Yes, and he is in the Historian's Guild. He works in the museum in London. For Chudley Pomeroy. Right, he works for Chudley Pomeroy, so he knows things about, like, the map of the 21st century, or the North American deities, which are minions. Funny. It's a little funny. In the book, it's Mickey and Goofy. Yeah, but then it was made by Universal. (laughs) Right, so it's two minions, which honestly, like, if you see Mickey and Goofy, you're just like, ah, yes, the culture has shifted. When you see minions, it feels like a laugh line. I know. It really feels like they're predicting their own future. Yes. So he just, like, is kind of a grunt at the museum, like, he gets in trouble for being late to work kind of thing. Yeah. And he's lower class, so he's yes. not respected by his upper class colleagues. By Chudley Pomeroy? No, Chudley Pomeroy likes him. It's the other guy. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The guy who looks, uh, Herbert, he looks like the dude from Andor. Yes. But he does have one upper class friend, and that's Kate Valentine. Played by Layla George, a.k.a. Vincent D'Onofrio's daughter. Really? <laughs> yeah. I had no idea. Weird thing about her. At the point this movie comes out, she is dating Sean Penn. Ew. Who is a cool 31 years older than she is. Yeah. And <laughs> also locked Madonna in a basement. Yeah. Well, Layla George married Sean Penn in 2020 and filed for divorce in 2021. 2020 was a bad time for all of us. Yeah, yeah for all of us. But so Tom and Kate, at minimum, are like friends. He's showing her around the museum. He's like, look at all this cool history stuff. And she's like, wow, I do love history. And I'm like, all right, guys, we're, you're laying it on a little thick. I already bought into this movie. Yeah. You don't have to cater it to me. <laughs> but it also, I don't know, they're not doing their best at being flirty. You're studying the end of the ancients. What I really need are first-hand accounts of the 60-minute war. Journals, books, personal papers... Very few written records survived during that period. It may very well be they forgot how to read and write altogether. But if it's a 60-minute war you're after, follow me. It's clearly kind of flirty, but it also could be, like, overlapping just with, like, the weird class differential. Once Herbert, the high-class museum worker, shows up, you're like, oh, this is a love triangle. I understand what this is. Herbert thinks that he should be with Kate because they're of the same station. But Kate likes the kind of scrappy knowledge. That Tom has. And Tom thinks she's pretty because she looks normal and doesn't have a gun for an arm. If only. But we have all that going on and then like, you know, this London ingests another city and Hester Shaw is on board and she tries to kill Hugo Weaving. Tom goes after her. And Kate is sad when Tom falls, well, Tom falls or is pushed by Hugo Weaving out of the city. This is the last inkling we get of any romantic relationship. Just, like, they're a little bit flirty, and she's sad when he is gone. Between the two of them. Yes. Yeah. And so that's where you're like, maybe this wasn't romantic. It sure felt like they were setting up a love triangle with Herbert, but this will never come up again. Yeah. I mean, I guess, like, the other guy. Herbert. No, the friend. Tom's friend. Oh, yeah. Maybe they are supposed to be flirty? I think the movie could make them flirty, but doesn't. Like, when she starts teaming up with Tom's friend to investigate her dad's nefarious dealings, 
it feels like that's an opportunity that the movie doesn't take. Yeah, this movie really should have been much fornier. <laughs> yeah, and it's the thing of like, look, maybe it's supposed to be exactly as romantic as it's shown. The way that like young people will kind of flirt with each other, but also move on with their lives because there's lots of young people. Yes. But I don't think that's what it was going for. No. And I mean, we'll probably, I assume we'll get into it, but the other relationship with Tom in it doesn't make a lot of sense either. No, it does not. So it's the writing. It is not the characters. Yeah. So let's talk about Hester Shaw, which brings us to point number two. Oh, Hester Shaw. Hester Shaw is played by Hera Hilmar, who's an Icelandic actress. She's mostly just in Icelandic stuff. Uh, But she was on all three seasons of C on Apple TV. Oh, okay. Sure. You know, C, C, the show we all watched. Yeah, that somehow made three seasons? Oh, yes. My God. Huh. (laughs) So Hester Shaw is the daughter of Pandora Shaw, who is apparently the most famous archaeologist ever to live. Everyone knows Pandora Shaw. Everyone knows Pandora Shaw, just like we all today can name the most famous archaeologists. I guess it's probably because she was friends slash more than friends with Thaddeus Valentine, who is actually a big deal. Yeah, he's the head of the Historians Guild. And the deputy mayor of London. Yes. Serving underneath uh, Lord Mayor Magnus Chrome. Magnus Chrome, yes. Magnus Chrome is a straight-up Mad Max name. Magnus Chrome is great. If Magnus Chrome were the name of, like, Lord Humongous's lieutenant, you'd be like, of course, this makes sense. Honestly, he's a really fun character. <laughs> when he gets shot, it's so funny. I will say, you know, again, I keep, like, including these movies that come out around the same time and feel very similar. You do feel like Ben Mendelsohn in Robin Hood is bringing just a little more juice than even Hugo Weaving is given in Mortal Engines. Yes, that is true. Because Ben Mendelsohn walks that line between sinister and sympathetic better than, like, anybody. Yes. Yeah. But Hugo Weaving is giving eyebrows. Yeah, he's like a thick-eyebrowed villain who is, like, convinced he is right, but you don't understand his plan enough to understand why he thinks he's right. And the veneer comes off really fast where he just wants power and to make things go boom. Right. So Hester Shaw is is the daughter of Pandora Shaw and of Hugo Weaving. So I guess she is the half-sister of Kate? Ooh, extra drama in that love triangle they never developed. Yeah, I guess Tom has a type. (laughs) What this means is eventually Tom and Hugo Weaving should make out. Well, they can't, because he was run over by a city. See, I think the city stopped right before running him over. I think the movie allows for the possibility that he could come back. I think so, but I think that since there are no sequels, he probably just died. So Hester Shaw... She didn't know that Hugo Weaving was her dad. She knew that he had something to do with her mom being thrown out of London. And so she lived with her mom for a bit. Then her mom died. Then she was found by Shrike, the resurrected man, who took her in and raised her. And Shrike wanted her to become like him, to become a resurrected woman, so that she wouldn't have to be sad anymore because she would have no emotions. Yeah, because she was sad because her mom died. And Shrike's like, just become like me. And she's like, okay, Shrike, I'll become like you. But then... She learned that London had come to the continent, and so she could find and kill Hugo Weaving. So she abandoned Shrike, she came to London, she stabs Hugo Weaving, but not fatally, and she flees the city, and Tom gets pushed after her. And so point number two are the sort of grumpy meetings between Tom and Hester Shaw. I've got you! Let go of me! Tom! 
Tom! Look at me. Look at me. This is what he does when he gets in his way. Ask him why he murdered my mother. Ask him about Hester Shaw. Oh my god. <laughs> so, like, he gets dumped out of the city, too, into this dry riverbed. Yeah. And... She immediately is like, I want nothing to do with you. You are dumb. Yeah, I mean, he's a he's a pampered city boy. He won't know how to survive in the wilderness. Right, whereas she knows that, like, Twinkie's still good after all these years. Yeah. Expired in 21-something, though. Yeah, and we're told that that's over a thousand years ago. Yeah. The closest we have to actually, like, dating this movie. Yeah, that's all we get. The Fever Crumb books are set 600 years earlier and say that's when the Traction Cities get started. That makes... I mean... 600 might be long. I guess if the Traction Cities are dying, then yeah, they've lived a full life cycle. Yeah. So, like, they just have, like, a lot of grumpy interactions at this point. Like, there are the, like, reavers who hunt them for a bit, and they're helping each other a little bit. But all along the way, she's like, ugh, I don't want to help you. Ugh, you're taking my Twinkie. Ugh, if I were in your position, I would have left you behind. Yeah. She's mean. She is mean, and she also just does not seem that interested in this dude like clearly it is like she's doing her thing and he is going after her because she seems to have a plan yeah which i mean fair he would have died otherwise right but this attitude stays true for a while it stays true up until they fall into scuttlebutt which is this little crawling centipede craft that can camouflage itself to look like the ground cool yes it's very cool and it's captained by this like old english couple That's the other thing. This movie should have a bunch of ridiculous European accents in it. Yeah. These people shouldn't all be British. Right. Like, the Scuttlebutt people, they should be, like, Belgian. Right. They should be an old Belgian couple. But no, they are creepy Victorians. It's also true of, like, you know, why why does Hester Shaw have an American accent? Why do all the people in his Bavarian town seem to be British? It doesn't make a lot of sense, and they did not put that much effort into it. (laughs) No, they did not. So... At that point, like, he is determined to help her, in part because he's like, ah, yes, this woman that I should be helping, but also because, like, she is his insurance. Yeah. The moment where she just takes the bed was kind of funny. There's, like, one bed in the room, and he's starting to offer, like, you take the bed, I'll sleep somewhere else, and she's already asleep in the bed. Yeah, but she is injured. Somewhere around this point, for no clear reason, she decides they are friends. Yes. And that's point number three. Point number three is, friends? With a question mark. See, I knew you wouldn't leave me. Shut up and run. Yeah, I mean, I guess it really, the only thing that actually shows us this is when she does rescue him at the slave market. Yeah, and like, that you could see as being sort of, he took care of her after she got a harpoon against her, like, scraping her leg, and he got her to Scuttlebutt and helped her heal there. So you could see her saving him in the slave market as being like, all right, you saved me, I saved you, now we're even. Like, she could take that kind of gruff, unengaged attitude, but she doesn't. From that point, she's just like, no, Tom and I are friends, and we're going to be going through this together. Yeah, they're just kind of along along the way, together. You think about a movie like Romancing the Stone, where they have this pretty hostile relationship early on, and they build a relationship through, like, the night that they spend together in the downed plane, for example. We see them building a nice relationship. The closest we get to that in this is just when he's introducing himself, and Hester Shaw is like, we're not going to tell each other our sad stories. It's so fun how little this movie cares about romance. <laughs> right. And so it's like, they're, they're friends now because we, the audience, now know them both. Yeah, because we expect them to get along. So now it's just like, 
I, I guess they are friends. Anna Fang saves them from the market because Anna Fang was friends with Hester's mom. When she was seven years old. Right. And that basically takes us to point number four, which is when Shrike comes back. Ah, oh, Shrike. The resurrected man, member of the Lazarus Brigade, survivor of the Nomad Wars. Boy, does he show up. So they have two encounters with Shrike, who, by the way, has glowing green eyes and like a skull face. He looks like Zorn from New X-Men. He's great. He is also, I was thinking, because soon we're going to be talking about Return to Oz, and I watched a million Oz adaptations. Shrike is a little bit of a Tin Man. He is the Tin Man. Yeah, he has no heart. But he does. Yes, he has love for Hester Shaw. So we have these uh, these Shrike fights. So there's the first Shrike fight, and they get away. They're on board the airship that Anna Fang has. And she tells him her whole Shrike backstory. How Shrike raised her, how Shrike wanted to turn her into a resurrected woman. She tells her sad story, as she puts it. Mm-hmm. He then puts his hand on top of hers on the railing, and then she leaves. Oh my god. So that is a little bit romantic. Yes. Could just be comforting, feels a little romantic. I think the movie believes that they are in love. Oh, the movie does believe that they are in love, because then Shrike comes back for round number two, and this is where Shrike fights. He beats up Tom, who constantly puts himself between Hester and whatever a threat is in fights. He's always like, get behind me kind of thing. It's like, she can fight. She has knives. You are a little history dork. Which she does point out. Yeah. I know during that fight, Tom gets knocked down. Hester is like up against Strike saying like, leave us alone. No, he can't die. He can't. He can't. He can't. And Shrike gets mad. He says, you love him. Because she doesn't want Tom to die. And then she whispers, that's right. It's so bad. It's so funny. So the movie does think they're in love because Hester says it. Yes. I personally don't believe it. (laughs) No, I do not. At that point, then, Shrike shuts down for no reason. Why does he he die? Stops working. (laughs) It makes no sense. There's no explanation. There's been nothing else in the fight to indicate that Shrike is dying. A minute earlier, he was saying, like, Hester, come with me. We're going to go and be robots together. Yeah, we're going to, like, live our life. And then he dies of a broken heart, I guess. Yeah. And then she is sad for Shrike. I do think, like, I wish that Hester were more influenced by growing up with Shrike. Like, as Shrike dies, we see him flashing back through memories of raising Hester. So funny. It's extremely funny. <laughs> it's not supposed to be, but it's extremely funny. And... I just wish she had, like, weird cult beliefs. Because it's implied that, like, the resurrected men are fanatics. And it, it kind of like in The Mandalorian, where the whole first season, he's like, these are the beliefs of Mandalorians. For example, I can never take off my helmet. And then in season two, he meets other Mandalorians that he didn't grow up around. And they're like, that's not a thing. You grew up in a cult. Like, you just have weird beliefs because you were surrounded by weirdos. And I wish Hester Shaw had, like, weird social norms or ideas Because she was raised by a resurrected man. It would be fun. But I guess that's like, the main thing is she's mean. Yeah, which is like, okay. She's going to decide to be in love with someone for no reason. So she can't be that mean. Yeah, bonkers. Um, That's point number four. That kind of deals with it. So Hester says she's in love. This never comes up again. Nope. Point number five, end of the movie. They have defeated Hugo Weaving. 
They have saved the land beyond the wall. Shangguo lives to be stationary another day. And uh, at the end of the movie, they're back on their airship. They're going to go off and go on adventures. And they have a nice long hug. So what happens now? We go where the wind takes us. See the world? What do you say? I'm coming with you. Why didn't they kiss? <laughs> it's just, Why didn't I kept they waiting kiss? for it to happen. It's just a really long It hug. doesn't make sense. I wish that it were something like fireproof, like one of them refused to kiss anyone who wasn't their wife. Ugh. Oh my god. All right, Will, do you find the romance believable? I don't even really understand it. It doesn't make a lot of sense. Like, if you take just Tom's perspective, I believe that Tom would have a crush on Kate. I believe Tom would have a crush on Kate. I believe Kate would reciprocate in some way. Yeah, but maybe not actually go for it because of all the complicated social dynamics. I don't think he would fall in love with Hester. Hester, who is mean. Who is just mean to him. I believe that he would give her a hug after a stressful situation. I believe he would put his hand on hers after telling her sad story. And of course, Tom never says that he is in love with Hester. We just have Hester say that she's in love with Tom. And... It does seem like Hester maybe has not spent time building a lot of close relationships with humans. So it could be like she's having like a tempest situation where she's like the first man I meet. Hello. I don't know. I think Tom falls in love with her because she's a badass, I guess. Yeah. Where would you rate this on our scale of one to five or ten? I I, I, I don't know. Is this like a four? Uh, I was going to go with three. Okay, do it. It does not pass the Congo test. No, it certainly is not as believable as Congo. Do you think that Kate, Hester, or Tom is dateable? Maybe Kate. Because Kate is just like a normal member of society who, when she realizes the government is doing bad things, tries to stop it. Yeah, and doesn't have a gun for an arm, unfortunately. I mean, that's that's the big problem. Yeah. Kate. Um, Hester is mean. <laughs> Hester is mean and was raised by a killer cyborg. And then Tom's just annoying. He is. He gives a bad name to members of the History Guild. Uh, do you think Tom and Hester will stay together? Are they together? Are they together? <laughs> Unclear. Like, do I think they will continue to hug? Because the movie ends on that long hug. I guess. They might literally stay together. Just keep hugging until the ship goes down. I don't see that happening. <laughs> but, I don't know. Maybe? It's hard to know because it's run hard- run into a lot of other options. It's just hard to know, like, what Hester expects a relationship to look like. Or, yeah, I don't know. Uh, I'm going to go with no. Yeah, I'm going to say no. If you did have to choose someone in this movie to date, who would you pick? I mean, I'm tempted to say Shrike because I think that I could fix him. <laughs> Are you that good with a hammer? Um, I might say Chudley Pomeroy. I was going to say Chudley Pomeroy, too. Chudley Pomeroy is the head of the museum. Andy would get to say Chudley Pomeroy. I'd say, hey, Chudley. Chuds. And it's spelled C-H-U-D-L-E-I-G-H. Yeah, how else would you spell Chudley? <laughs> He's played by Colin Salmon, who is great. Yeah, and he also tries to fight the government when he figures out the plan. That's true. So, Chudley Pomeroy. Oh, Chudley Pomeroy, apparently, uh, Colin Salmon, is also in London Has Fallen, which could also be the name of this movie. <laughs> it could. <laughs> Except it doesn't fall, it just stops. Well, there was a big tilt. There was the big tilt. <laughs> All right, Will. <laughs> Should there be a Mortal Engines musical? I would love to see it because I would love to see, like, King Kong style, 
the stage puppetry they did for the Tragedy Cities. However, I think the stage is a terrible medium for this story. This can only be a movie, and I know it's a book, but I think the book is a very different story. It's just, like, it's a story that is all about massive scale. Yeah. Which you can do in a book because you can just say whatever you want, and you can do it in a movie. But on stage, you are limited by the amount of space that you have. Yeah. As much as I would love to hear Shrike's lament, I don't think they should make a musical. I honestly don't know that I want Shrike to sing. I, li- I like Shrike as a non-singer. It would be funny if Shrike sang and he had, like, a robot voice singing. Yes, it would be funny if he did his weird, like, Esther Shaw, I wanted to have you with me. We'd be robots, you and me. You can't rhyme me with me. I, w- I, would, just, I would just come in it up, and honestly, I didn't remember that. I rhymed me with me. <laughs> All right. Well, unfortunately, there will be no Mortal Engines musical in our future, I can guarantee. That's fine. It's more unfortunate that there will be no Mortal Engines sequel, because this was a gigantic flop, as we said. I know. Give us the video game, at least. You could sell that. Open world, just traction cities everywhere. Because it's like, there's so many different ways you can do it. You could do, like, you're an Assassin's Creed style, investigating each city, but you also can drive the cities... Yeah. And then, you know, the options are limitless. There's so many different kinds of gameplay that could exist in it. Right. Because it's a city, but also a vehicle. Like, what more do you need for a video game? It's cool. People should do it. Uh, Next week, we'll be covering a very different movie. (laughs) So we didn't know The Family Stone was a Christmas movie when we decided to watch it in January. Or when we decided to do... (laughs) Uh, non-Christmassy Christmas movies this year. Well, that's why it worked out that we didn't do it at Christmas. Yeah. So we are doing it two weeks later? Yep. So tune in next week for The Family Stone, a weird movie. Until then, you can follow the show on Facebook and Twitter at Love the Love Pod, and you can email us questions or movie suggestions at lovethelovepod at gmail.com. Make sure to rate, review, and subscribe, especially on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify to help other people find the show. All right, Will. Last question. What is the best piece of dating advice you got from Mortal Engines? Um, I mean, there's not much. <laughs> no. I'm going to say, um, if you have a relationship with someone, don't fully exile them because their child might come back and try to murder you. Okay. That's sure. the biggest relationship advice I got from Mortal Engines. Uh, I guess my advice is... If someone tells you their sad story, sometimes a comforting handhold is all you need. That's a much better piece of advice. Alright, there you go. Until next time, I'm Gay. And I'm a Ginger. So between the two of us, we know everything there is to know about romance. Bye! Bye.